hiding place over the covenant names of God. And uh, so just to refresh, maybe you haven't been here for the earlier ones, just to refresh you a little bit. It's about the covenant names of God. There's a card on your chair. And today we're going to talk about Jehovah Makedesh. But uh, just to refresh your memory, the, uh, the theme verse, uh, verses from Psalm 91, I hope you will catch the connection between this and Jehovah Makedesh before we're done here today. Verse 1, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High, whoever dwells in the shelter of Jehovah Makedesh will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I'm telling you that you, I can't wait to get into this because that's where it takes us. That's who God is to us, Jehovah Makedesh. That's what he is. He's that hiding place. He's my God. He's the refuge, the fortress. He's the one in whom I trust. And uh, this is really exciting stuff. I can't wait. So, uh, Definition of covenant. All these are about covenant names. And, uh, and, you know, in our modern American language, contract is probably about the closest word that we commonly use um, in place of covenant. But in the Bible, it's not exactly that. It's an agreement between God and his people. Not, we don't sign a contract and look for opportunities to, you know, they broke this so that I don't have to do and that sort of thing. It's not that at all. It's highly relational, an agreement between God and his people in which God makes promises to his people. Jehovah Makedesh is a promise. I will sanctify you. He is our sanctifier. And uh, I, I hope that that I can help you get around some of the negative connotations of the word sanctify because they seem to pervade that word. Even if you look it up in, in a, a modern English dictionary, it's going to say it's a religious lingo kind of thing. And I mean, honestly, we mostly use it in church, but the, the meaning of it is so incredibly rich that uh, I hope it'll sink deep in your heart. So here's the definition of uh, sanctify, to dedicate or separate to set apart for a special purpose, to be uncommon in a good way, really, really special. I, I'm not much of an electrician. I have been shocked a few times trying to change light switches and that sort of thing, so I know a little bit about it. But um, if you use the word dedicate with, to an electrician, what's he or she going to think about? Yeah, it's a dedicated line, right? And what does that mean? It means like that one line comes directly from the power source to that one thing that it's going to serve, and you're not going to siphon off any power for any other purpose. It's for that one thing alone. So it's dedicated, and that's kind of the meaning of what this is all about. God is saying to us, you're special people dedicated for a special purpose, and you are people of destiny. We're going to see that as we walk through this. I got four points this morning. I'm up one from last time. So I'm making progress. And I think we can get through this in, in good order. But it's four ways in which Jehovah Makedesh takes on meaning in our lives and makes a difference for our life and our eternity. Let's look at point number one. The Lord, my sanctifier, resolves the greatest dilemma. Just let that soak in for a second. Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord my sanctifier, resolves the greatest dilemma. I mean, here's the reason why. 
Let me start with this. I had so much fun studying for this message. I've never preached on this name of God before. Never really studied it out until the last couple of weeks. And, uh, man, I learned some things. I was so glad. I was like, I'm so glad, Jason, let me do this one because it's really, really awesome. That, that word for sanctify, um, it's also translated holy and, uh, and some variations on that throughout the Old Testament. And it's like so common in the Old Testament. It just, it's, it's amazing. It all comes back to a single root in the Hebrew language. And there are over 700 times in the Old Testament where this word shows up. Some of the names of God that we're talking about might show up two, three, a half dozen times throughout the Bible. Over 700 times in the Old Testament. It's like one, one scholar said, of all of the words in the Old Testament, there is no single word and there is no name of God that more truly expresses his nature than this one. And it's like that word, that sanctity, that holy, that is like the dominant theme of the Old Testament. If you don't get that, you've missed the point of all of those books and what God is saying to us about himself in the Scripture. It's really, really key. And so, you know, here's, here's what's happened to us. We have come to define God more in New Testament terms, and we kind of fixate on one verse in, New, in 1 John, which says God is love, right? So, which is absolutely true. I mean, there, no truer statement was ever made. God is love. He defines love for us. Problem is, in our culture, we have flipped that over, and we kind of made it more like love is God. So wherever you see love, there's where you see God. And then it becomes however I choose to define love is how I define God, because he's love, right? And love is him. And that's So here, here's the problem with that. It ignores the fact that Ultimately, God is not just love. God is holy. There's something special about him. There's something about him that has to be taken. So the, the, the part that blows my mind, I can't, even, I can't even find words. I can't find the language to say this well. But I can tell you this. In the Bible, love never, God's love never diminishes his holiness. And God's holiness never diminishes his love. If you don't get both, you don't get it. They, they are both there. And, and so the ultimate dilemma is built on this verse in Psalm 14, 2. This is not the only place, but it, it helps to illustrate it well. In Psalm 14, 2, and by the way, Paul quotes this almost verbatim in Romans three ten through 12 because he wants to bring that into his, it's like the most theological book in the New Testament. He bases the whole theology of salvation off from this, this concept. Verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. And here's what happens. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good, not a single one. All right, don't stumble over this because this is not saying that everybody is as bad as they can possibly be, all right? And sometimes that's the way we tend to read it. He's No, the point is there's not one person that hasn't messed up in some way, that, that hasn't become separated from God because of sin. And so here's the ultimate dilemma of the, of the universe. You have got a God who's holy, he's pure, he's perfect, who wants to have a close, personal, intimate relationship with human beings, and sin is blocking that from happening. It can't. 
I mean, remember Moses, he wanted to see God. Moses pretty good, pretty good guy, wouldn't you agree? All right, one of the best in the Bible. Moses wanted to see God, and so what happened? God said, well, listen, Moses, I'll, I'll take you this far. I'm going to put you in the opening of a cave. I'm going to walk by. I'll, I'll put my hand over the cave until I get past. And then, you know, when, when, when I'm past, then you, you'll be able to see my, uh, my, my silhouette. You know, you'll see, you'll see me from, but you can't, if you look in my face, you're going to die. And so human, human sinfulness and God's holiness cannot mix. It's, it's water and oil. Can't do it. And so God's got this dilemma. He wants a relationship with us. Our sin making that impossible. And so he has a covenant with us. He's going to sanctify us so that we can have that relationship with him. Ultimately, if you get this name of God, you'll understand that it's about human contact with God. He wants that. And something inside of us longs for that as well. Contact. I mean, real contact with God. And because of Jehovah Makedesh, it becomes possible for that to happen. It's an amazing thing. So God, I mean, there's this problem in the universe. God sets it right, and that puts us on our way. So let's move to the second point, which builds from this. The Lord, my sanctifier, is a relational God. This makes him different. He wants that close, intimate relationship. with That's what it's all about. Let me take you to a few uh, verses in the Old Testament that tell us about who God is. Exodus thirty-four, fourteen: you must worship no other gods. For the Lord, whose very name is jealous, is a God who is jealous about his relationship with you. He's passionate about a relationship with human beings. And what's cool about this verse is it immediately opens our eyes to the fact that not only does God sanctify us, he wants us to sanctify him, which seems like a foreign concept to us because of our misunderstanding of what sanctify means. It's like, how can I? Look at me, I'm a mess. How am I ever going to sanctify God? You do it this way. You only give him credit for being God. You set him apart about every other God, so-called God in the universe, above every other thing that we tend to worship and honor and adore and crave. God takes that role. We're sanctifying him. We're setting him apart as something special. He's uncommon in, in the best of terms. There is no one at his level whatsoever. That's how we sanctify God. And he's saying, I'm jealous for that kind of relationship with you. I want that with you. And, and let's leave all this other stuff out of the equation because that only corrupts and, and messes up the relationship that I really long to have. Let's look at another verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people. Wow. Think of the people that they, these words are being spoken to. You are a holy people. Like these people are a hot mess. These are the people God said to Moses, I'm going to kill them all. I am, I am done. I'll spare you, but this is over. I can't take this another day. Same people he's calling holy. All right, these, these are the ones where God said to, to Moses, listen, I'll tell you what, uh, I'm so over this. I'm going to go ahead and give you the promised land because... It's the promised land, and I'm going to keep my promise, but I'm getting off the bus right here, and you can go on your merry way without me because you don't seem to need me anyway. I mean, that's the kind, and then God turns around and says, you're a holy people. What does he mean by that? That they're all good, you know, and churchy and all that kind of stuff. It couldn't know. 
These are the people he gave them the Ten Commandments, and they couldn't keep them. They couldn't stop lying. They couldn't stop stealing. They couldn't stop killing. They couldn't stop dishonoring their parents. They couldn't stop loving and chasing after other gods versus him. They broke them all. You're a holy people. How can that be? Because he called them. He said, listen, I'm going to sanctify you. You don't deserve this. You're a mess, but I'm going to sanctify you so I can have this relationship to you who belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on earth, the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own special treasure. Can we take a moment and just talk about four key words in here? Holy, we already covered. That's the same word for, that's Makedesh, right? Sanctify. Uh, belong. Belong to the Lord your God. Of all the people on the earth, the Lord has chosen you. Belong, chosen to be his own special treasure. I mean, this verse is just really, really loaded with terminology that helps us to understand the relationship God wants with us and for us in our lives. It's actually, when you think about it, it's a, it's a pretty good model for a marriage. I mean, look, look at the word belong. We tend, we tend to have a negative reaction to that. I don't want to belong to anybody. I'm not going to be anybody's puppet on the string. I don't want anybody controlling my life and telling me what I'm going to do. And we, we kind of supply that understanding to the word belong, but it's, it's not that at all. And just an example, I, I, I want everybody to know Joan belongs to me. Okay? She belongs to me. I belong to her. I wear this ring because it's just a statement that anybody would understand. We belong to you. Does that mean that I control her? You've met my, my wife. Nobody controls Joan except Joan and Jesus. I mean, it's just, she, <laughs> or, yeah. It's not about God wanting to control our life. It's, it's about him wanting to embrace us and us embrace him and the kind of relationship that fulfills us and makes life take on richness and meaning and joy. Joan and I don't have a lot of, we have conflict, but we don't have a lot of conflict in our marriage, in our life, because fortunately we've grown past those days when there was more of it. And, uh, and, you know, I don't think it's because we've changed so much. Both of us still have our weaknesses and imperfections. I think it's just that we've gotten to the point where we don't focus on those things. You know, I, I'm no longer trying to fix her, and she's no longer trying to fix me so that we can have a relationship that we enjoy. It's more that we focus on the positive things, the good things, and we enjoy that. You know, and so it's like the cool thing about this is in, in the best of love stories, I mean, you just think of all the great love stories in the world. What happens is, I mean, I mean think of Nicholas Sparks. It's one of Joan's favorite authors of romance novels kinds of thing. And I know about Nicholas Sparks. Sparks because every once in a while she says, here, you need to read this. So, so I do. You think, but you think about the great stories and what happens is you've got two people that are really different from each other and there's some kind of insurmountable obstacle that tries to drive them apart. You know, it might be dementia, you know, notebook. It might be, I see, I'm just trying to show you. 
that I'm there. It, it could be a war. It could be some other relationship or parents that don't think one is good enough for the other and they don't want them in the family or their prior life. But there's something there blocking that relationship from happening. But this stubborn love just keeps persisting until it finds a way around it or over or through it. And, that, and those people are able to be together. That's what Jehovah Mekadish means. God in his stubborn love persist in finding a way to have a close, personal, intimate relationship with human beings that ought to be absolutely impossible because of sin and the choices that we've made. But he finds a way to do it, and he does it by sanctifying us, setting us apart. We're special and making us able to enter into that kind of a, a relationship with him. It's really, really awesome. Let's One other verse in Deuteronomy, uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, this is this is the, called the Shema. It's it's like the John three sixteen of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus. One time, some people were trying to trap Jesus, and they said, "You know, what's the most important verse in the Old Testament? What do you quote? This right here." So let's look at. It. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. It's about the relationship that He wants. And if you ask Jesus, what's the most important thing that we can take away from all the Bible? He's saying, figure out how, how to have a love relationship with God. And you're there. I, I remember trying to preach that verse from the New Testament and, you know, trying to make a point. Well, this is how you love him with all your heart. And this is how you love him with all your soul. And this is how you love him with all your strength. That's really not the point of this at all. The point is he wants that relationship to so pervade our lives that it's a daily thing. It's not a Sunday morning, go to church kind of deal. It's an everyday, every experience, every part of my life kind of love that includes God and sets him apart and makes him special in the best of terms. That's central to my life. That's the relationship that God wants with us. That's what Jehovah Makedesh is all about. Let's go to the third uh, point. Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord, my sanctifier, created us for a destiny. And I've underlined us, uh, and I'm only going to make this quick comment about it, but if you study this out, there's no way you can, you can slip into the good old rugged American individualism in your understanding of this. It's not that. It's, it's a group kind of thing. It's about community. And so if you only want to make it, I mean, ultimately we have to personalize it or it doesn't take on the richness of its meaning. But we are part of something beyond ourselves that God is building. We are people that he loves and he's called to us. So, and that's where I want to go uh, kind of with making this point. We're people of destiny. You want to know what your purpose is? Let me just show you something that, that, that will blow you away. If anyone were to ask me, is there sort of a golden thread that weaves its way all through the Bible. I mean, bear in mind that the Bible consists of 66 books. They were written by 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years, okay? So when you pick up that book, there's, it's like, how does this hold together when you consider all the ages and generations and locations and personalities and everything involved in putting that together? But there's incredible um, uh, connections all through the Bible that can only be accomplished by the Holy Spirit. But if you were to ask me, my, my response may be different from anything that I've ever read. And just uh, don't take this as fact. This is this is how I read it. But if I 
I think I see a, a repetition all through Scripture, and it's this. God is saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. And if I were to condense down what's the theme, the golden thread, that's what I come up with again and again. I will be your God, you'll be my people. It's a relationship that he wants. Let me give you five illustrations of it. First one in Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7. And I'm taking all of these from uh, Eugene Peterson's message translation. I just like the way he's worded. But you can look at any translation and, and you'll see this theme taking us. So in Exodus chapter 6, Moses is reluctantly on his way to Egypt. God has spoken to him out in the sheep pasture, the desert, through a burning bush, told him he was to go there and set the people of Israel free, right? Because they're slaves. They're working every day under the hot sun. They're getting beat up um, for every little thing that they do wrong. They don't move fast enough. It's a horrible existence. And they were crying out to God, begging him to give them a little bit of relief. So God said, go on down there. Time has come. I'm going to set them free. And he said, and this is what I want you to say to them. I'll take you as my own people and I'll be God to you. You'll know that I am God, your God, who brings you out from under the cruel, hard labor of Egypt. There's a whole story around that, but I just want you to see the phrase, okay? It's time for this relationship to take take it to another level. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. Let's take another look. This is also in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 26. And in this section, God is talking about the blessings that he's going to pour out on the people who will walk with him, who will live for him, who will, who, who will walk in his ways. And, and I love the way this is phrased, I'll stroll through your streets. But maybe in your translation, it just says, um, I'll walk with you or something like that. I'll stroll through your streets. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And literally, he wants to set up that kind of a relational existence between us and him. I'm going to be there with you in your town, on your streets. I'll see you there. This is the life that we're going to have. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Um, it's really amazing stuff. All right, let's go to, let's jump to the prophets. I'm going to look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And Jeremiah 32, they will be my people, I will be their God. Very straightforward in that verse. If you look at the context, Jeremiah is talking about this uh, king of Babylon who's going to come and take them captive. It did happen during his lifetime. In fact, it's very, very close to happening when all of this is going on. And then Jeremiah moves past that. And he said, now this is what God is saying for you. He's not going to leave you without hope. You are going to have 70 really, really tough years. But ultimately, I'm going to bring you back to the homeland. You're going to live in the city of Jerusalem once again. We're going to start this relationship that's gone sour. You don't want me to be your God. You're worshiping all these other things. So I'm going to let you go on your own way, and you can have it the way that you want it apart from me. But ultimately, I still love you. I'm going to find a way, and there will be a point where you'll be my people and I'll be your God. It's amazing stuff. Ezekiel. Ezekiel and Jeremiah were somewhat contemporaries. There was some overlap um, in their ministry historically. Also, Ezekiel, I mean, he was part of the Babylonian captivity. He was one of the young guys, along with Daniel, who were in that first wave that were taken captive. And, uh, and so he's writing from Babylon and that whole thing. That whole book of Ezekiel takes place historically in that setting. And so he's seeing it and actually living this out. And he's prophesying as well, never again. Will they pollute their lives with no God idols, okay? No God. Actually, I love what 
Gene Peterson did with this because the word idol, when you take it in its raw Hebrew form, just means no God. That's, that's where you could take the word idol out of there and it would read the same. They're never going to, again, pollute their lives with no gods and all those vile obscenities and rebellions. Remember, they were actually sacrificing their children on altars of fire to foreign gods, repulsive to God. He hated all that kind of crazy nonsense they allowed themselves to get into, and it became culturally acceptable in their day. I'll save them out of all their old sinful haunts. I'll clean them up. They'll be my people. I'll be their God. It's a destiny that he has in mind for us. And even when things were at their worst, and people were the most rebellious against that call of God into that kind of relationship. He still kept working toward making it happen for us as human beings. There's one more I'm going to take you all the way, not only to the New Testament, but to the end of the Bible in the book of Revelation, in almost the last chapter, chapter 21, next to the last chapter, verse 3. Remember, this is the Apostle John. He was the closest of all the 12 disciples to Jesus. Nobody knew Jesus any better than John did. He has this vision, and so he's experiencing this in the vision in heaven. And we get all the way to the end. I heard a voice thunder from the throne. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. Sound familiar? Remember Leviticus? I'm going to walk your streets. God has moved into the neighborhood, making his home with men and women. They're his people. He's their God. I I got chills this week when, for the first time, I noticed the tenses here. Remember, in all of the previous ones, it says, I will be your God. You will be my people. Here, I mean, the, the look, look part even got my attention. It's almost like a look, 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 look. Remember all those things about I will be and you will be? It's done. They are his people. He is their God. So in the, John's seeing the finished product here. In heaven, this is already accomplished. And it's, it's awesome. It puts chills in the, up and down your spine to think that all of these prophecies over, over the previous 1,500 years that have accumulated, now here at the very end, it's done. It, it, it's there. It's, that's the relationship that God has for us. That's the destiny He's called us to. Let's look at one other New Testament passage. A single verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are not like that. And we're not going to take time to back that up to see what the like that means specifically. But he's talking about people who have chosen to live their lives in sin and rebellion against God. You're not like that. For you are a chosen people. You're royal priests. Holy nation. Holy. There it is. You're sanctified as a nation. God's very own possession. Remember back when we were kids? Maybe you still do this. I don't know. You you buy those little packets of candy around Valentine's Day that have the words printed on them? Yeah. Remember back in third grade when that cute little girl put that one on your desk that said, Be mine? That's like the best one, right? Be mine. And somehow we tend to revolt against being God's very own possession, but there is something inside of us that longs to belong at that level. And that's what he's just saying. Nothing's going to 
nothing's ever going to change my love for you. Nothing's ever going to tear us apart. You belong to me. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Truly amazing stuff. The destiny, the purpose for which we're called, that's what Jehovah Makedesh is all about. It's like God purposed us to be that, to be with him in that way. And to the point that even though it seemed utterly impossible, he found a way to overcome the impossibilities and make that happen by becoming our sanctifier. So if you're still stuck in, you know, sanctify and holy and all that sort of thing means that uh, I, it means I'm a good person, you know, I'm that churchy guy, churchy gal. No, it's not that. It's beyond that. I mean, there's, a, there's an aspect of cleanness to it, which we're going to talk about next. But you have to see this first before we get to that part. Let's wrap it up with point number four. Jehovah Makedesh, the Lord my sanctifier, makes me clean. So it's not about me cleaning up my own life. It's about him doing something for me that I cannot possibly do for myself. I can't get there on my own, but God in his grace has found a way to make this happen. I, I don't know what it is, but I have not ever in my life taken as many showers as I have since we moved to Florida. <laughs> I, I, I mean, if you'd ever told me that I would take four showers a day, I'd have said, crazy. Yeah, I'm, but I mean, if you want to smell good and... Uh, be around people. There's the, there are those days when you know you walk to the mailbox and you go take a shower and change clothes, and uh, and go on your merry way. Um, so, something about us wants to be clean, right? I was thinking about when uh, oh, this is eons ago when I was a youth pastor. In uh, believe it or not, yeah, four years in Akron, Ohio. Jonah and I were newly married, uh, no kids, so we did everything together. And uh, we had a lot of fun, and uh, we just we just enjoyed doing crazy things. Well, one of the things we did was uh, we had a mud party. And I don't think you could do this here because the soil's too sandy and the water would just disappear. But back there in good old Ohio, man, you got this rich soil. It's cornfield America, right? And so, um, and the church had a pretty good uh, sized piece of property. So we brought in uh, a truckload of really good black topsoil. And we dug a pit, and we made we made a mud pit to beat all mud pits. And you step into that thing, and you go up to your knees. And it was just the right consistency, you know. It was uh, it was just a sloppy. I mean, it wasn't real watery. It was nice and thick, but it was gooey enough. And boy, we had fun. So we we started out. Nobody wanted to be the first one to get in the mess. So we started out with a tug of war. And so, and everybody had to promise that they would hold onto the rope. And if they got pulled in, they would go in, not run away when they're one step away from the edge. So sure enough, um, they, they fought really hard, but ultimately one side won and the other ones got dragged into the mud pit. And then after that, it was free for all. I mean, we just, I even jumped in and uh, we, we just, have you ever had that feeling of being covered literally from head to toe with mud? Anybody ever do that? The mud pit thing? Yeah, it's fun, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, I, I, there's no feeling like having your hair full of mud. And, 
in your ears and nose and and everything. So, and, and just moms, by the way, just just a, a word of caution to you: if your kids ever do that, you're never going to get their underwear clean. Don't even just burn it. It they will never be white again, or whatever color it was. It was. So, but I mean, the thing is, you get so, you can't even, you can't even open your eyes, you can't clear your eyes because your hands are so muddy. There's no way to get the mud. So I mean, we, we had a blast and it was fun and forgettable. Here I am all these years later still talking about this crazy nonsense. But one of the things we were smart enough to do was we had several hoses ready to go because it wasn't long. A few minutes later, everybody wants to get hosed off, right? Get that mud off from me. Life isn't so different. I mean, there are times when it's kind of fun to get dirty with the world, but who wants to live in the mess that we sometimes wallow in? I like being clean. I was kind of fascinated. Did anybody, anybody hear that the Pope was in the United States? So I didn't follow it closely, but I did read some stuff and watch some stuff about him. One thing caught my attention. When he first became Pope, um, he had this fund, I guess they all do, fund to uh, take care of needy people. And so they already had a program uh, involved feeding the homeless and that sort of thing. But he had a suggestion to make. He said, why don't you ask them what they want, the homeless people? And guess what they wanted? Showers. So he had a bunch of shower stalls built near the Vatican there. Showers. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Because we like to be clean. I've been thinking a lot lately about the presence of God. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but I've had moments when I could feel the presence of God. And when, when you get there, when you have that, there's, this, there's a peace unlike anything that you've experienced in your life. There's a calmness there. There's a cleanness about it. It's like everything's right. You're right with the world. You're right with God. You're right with yourself and with other people. In those moments, it's like, I don't want to leave. I, I want to stay here in this moment and in this place. God's presence does that to us. So sanctity, sanctifying has, does have something to do with cleanness, but it, it's, it's the means to the end, which is the relationship that he wants with us. And I hope you get that. I'm going to wrap up with just a couple of verses from the New Testament. Um, Romans 3, uh, chapter 3, 23 and 20, or verses 23 and 24. For everyone has sinned. I mean, that's established. That's broken their relationship with God. Everyone. Nobody can get back. Can be, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God freely and graciously declares that we are Bakedish. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sin. Jason's been saying all through this series that all those Old Testament covenant names of God that we see these strange Hebrew names are all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And this is absolute proof of it once again. I mean, it couldn't be stated more clearly. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of sin. That's how that relationship gets put back together again. And one more uh, verse from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 
For God made Christ who never sinned. He's the one exception to this who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. I dare you sometime this week to try to fully grasp what Jehovah Mekedesh is all about and not be brought to tears. I mean, as I, as I was studying this out and thinking about it, I've, I had a sense of brokenness in my own heart. I mean, it's, it's humbling, and it's like, man, if my heart longs for anything, is to be loved at that level, to feel like there's a purpose, a destiny, something about me. Do you have any idea how special you are to God? It's in Jehovah Mekedesh. It's an amazing concept, and it's through Christ. And it's not about deciding you're going to be a better person. It's about entering into a relationship that allows Jesus to be that for us. We're going to give you an opportunity this morning to begin that walk with Christ. Maybe you hear you're longing for a hiding place. You know, life has just brought you to that stormy time when you need some shelter. You need a fortress. You need a refuge. You need a place where you feel protected. A sanctuary, if you would, which come from the same word. That sanctuary of God's presence. It's in Jesus Christ. And how we get there, the Bible says, it's not about anything that we do except to put our faith in Christ. It's about believing. It's about accepting. If you, if you believe in Christ, you will be saved. Putting your faith in him. I want you to bow your heads, if you would, for me, please. And we're just going to take a moment for this. But I want to give you the opportunity just to invite Christ into your life this morning. Moving into that realm of relationship that he longs to have with you. And deep inside, you crave to have with him. It's just about saying yes to him and accepting that Jesus made that possible for you. Just between you and me and God, mostly between you and God, I really, it's not necessary to raise your hand in order to get there, but I'd love to pray with you this morning. If you just slip up your hand, say, Pastor Steve, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ today. I want to invite him into my life and accept the gift of his love for me by dying on the cross in my place for my sin. Can I just see your hand quickly? And then we're going to pray. Wrap it up. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. I see your hand. Anybody else before we pray? Begin your relationship, your walk with Jesus today. I mean, something will happen in this moment just by virtue of the fact that you're there right now and you want this to happen. God's already taken note of that. Something's already begun to happen in the heavenlies that's going to affect your heart and your future. Anybody else just before we pray? Father, thank you for the truth that you've given to us through the Bible. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that opens our understanding to those truths. And thank you, Jesus, today for making it possible for us to have a relationship with God that we could never accomplish on our own. We believe, Jesus, that you came into this world miraculously through a virgin birth. We believe that you lived a sinless life. We believe that of your free volition, you died on the cross in to take our sins on yourself, our punishment on yourself, so we could be be declared free and righteous as a result of that. And we embrace that gift of God, his grace that makes us righteous, that makes it possible for us to one day 
see God face to face and know him as he truly is in eternity. And we, we praise you, Lord, that you've made that possible and you're doing that work in individual hearts right this very second. We give you glory in Jesus' name.